Awaking on Friday morning, June 20, 1913, the South African native found himself, not actually a slave, but a pariah in the land of his birth. The 4,500,000 black South Africans are domiciled as follows. One and three-quarter millions in locations and reserves, over half a million within municipalities or in urban areas, and nearly a million as squatters on farms owned by Europeans. The remainder are employed either on the public roads or railway lines, or as servants by European farmers, qualifying, that is, by hard work and saving to start farming on their own account. A squatter in South Africa is a native who owns some livestock and, having no land of his own, hires a farm or grazing and plowing rights from a landowner to raise grain for his own use and feed his stock. Hence, these squatters are hit very hard by an act which passed both Houses of Parliament during the session of 1913, received the signature of the Governor-General on June 16, was gazetted on June 19, and forthwith came into operation. It may be here mentioned that on that day Lord Gladstone signed no fewer than 16 new Acts of Parliament some of them being rather voluminous, while three days earlier, His Excellency signed another batch of eight, of which the bulk was beyond the capability of any mortal to read and digest in four days. But the great revolutionary change thus wrought by a single stroke of the pen, in the condition of the native, was not realized by him until about the end of June. As a rule many farm tenancies expire at the end of the half-year, so that in June, 1913, not knowing that it was impracticable to make fresh contracts, some natives unwittingly went to search for new places of abode, which some farmers, ignorant of the law, quite as unwittingly accorded them. It was only when they went to register the new tenancies that the law officers of the Crown laid bare the cruel fact that to provide a landless native with accommodation was forbidden under a penalty of £100, or six months' imprisonment. Then only was the situation realized. Other natives who had taken up fresh places on European farms under verbal contracts, which needed no registration, actually founded new homes in spite of the law, neither the white farmer nor the native tenant being aware of the serious penalties they were exposed to by their verbal contracts. In justice to the government, it must be stated that no police officers scoured the country in search of lawbreakers to prosecute them under this law. Had this been done, many £100 checks would have passed into the government coffers during that black July, the first month after Lord Gladstone affixed his signature to the Natives' Land Act, No. 27 of 1913. The complication of this cruel law is made manifest by the fact that it was found necessary for a high officer of the government to tour the provinces soon after the act came into force, with the object of teaching magistrates how to administer it. A Congress of Magistrates a most unusual thing was also called in Pretoria to find a way for carrying out the King's writ in the face of the difficulties arising from this tangle of the act. We may add that nearly all white lawyers in South Africa, to whom we spoke about this measure, had either not seen the act at all, or had not read it carefully, so that in both cases they could not tell exactly for whose benefit it had been passed. The study of this law required a much longer time than the lawyers, unless specially briefed, could devote to it, so that they hardly knew what all the trouble was about.
It was the native in the four provinces who knew all about it, for he had not read it in books, but had himself been through its mill, which like an automatic machine ground him relentlessly since the end of the month of June. Not the least but one of the cruelest and most ironical phases, and nearly every clause of this act teems with irony is the schedule, or appendix giving the so-called scheduled native areas, and what are these scheduled native areas? They are the native locations which were reserved for the exclusive use of certain native clans. They are inalienable and cannot be bought or sold, yet the act says that in these scheduled native areas natives only may buy land. The areas being inalienable, not even members of the clans, for whose benefit the locations are held in trust, can buy land therein. The areas could only be sold if the whole clan rebelled, in that case the location would be confiscated. But as long as the clans of the location remain loyal to the government, nobody can buy any land within these areas. Under the respective charters of these areas, not even a member of the clan can get a separate title as owner in an area let alone a native outsider who had grown up among white people and done all his farming on white man's land. If we exclude the arid tracts of Bechuanaland, these locations appear to have been granted on such a small scale that each of them got so overcrowded that much of the population had to go out and settle on the farms of white farmers through lack of space in the locations. Yet a majority of the legislators, although well aware of all these limitations, and without remedying any of them, legislate, shall we say, with its tongue in its cheek that only natives may buy land in native locations. Again, the locations form but one-eighteenth of the total area of the Union. Theoretically, then, the 4,500,000 natives may buy land in only one-eighteenth part of the Union leaving the remaining 17 parts for the 1 million whites. It is moreover true that, numerically, the act was passed by the consent of a majority of both houses of parliament, but it is equally true that it was steamrolled into the statute book against the bitterest opposition of the best brains of both houses. A most curious aspect of this singular law is that even the minister, since deceased, who introduced it, subsequently declared himself against it adding that he only forced it through in order to stave off something worse. Indeed, it is correct to say that Mr. Sauer, who introduced the bill, spoke against it repeatedly in the House, he deleted the milder provisions, inserted more drastic amendments, spoke repeatedly against his own amendments, then in conclusion he would combat his own arguments by calling the ministerial steamroller to support the government and vote for the drastic amendments. The only explanation of the puzzle constituted as such by these hot and cold methods is that Mr. Sauer was legislating for an electorate at the expense of another section of the population which was without direct representation in Parliament. None of the non-European races in the provinces of Natal, Transvaal, and the Free State can exercise the franchise. They have no say in the selection of members for the Union Parliament. That right is only limited to white men, so that a large number of the members of parliament who voted for this measure have no responsibility towards the black races. Before reproducing this tyrannical enactment, it would perhaps be well to recapitulate briefly the influences that led up to it. When the union of the South African colonies became an accomplished fact, 
A dread was expressed by ex-Republicans that the liberal native policy of the Cape would supersede the repressive policy of the old republics, and they lost no time in taking definite steps to force down the throats of the Union legislature, as it were, laws which the Dutch presidents of pre-war days, with the British suzerainty over their heads, did not dare enforce against the native people then under them. With the formation of the Union, the imperial government, for reasons which have never been satisfactorily explained, unreservedly handed over the natives to the colonists, and these colonists, as a rule, are dominated by the Dutch Republican spirit. Thus the suzerainty of Great Britain, which under the reign of Her Late Majesty Victoria, of blessed memory, was the natives' only bulwark, has now apparently been withdrawn, or relaxed, and the Republicans, like a lot of bloodhounds long held in the leash, use the free hand given by the imperial government not only to guard against a possible supersession of Cape ideals of toleration, but to effectively extend throughout the Union the drastic native policy pursued by the province which is misnamed Free State, and enforce it with the utmost rigor. During the first year of the Union, it would seem that General Botha made an honest attempt to live up to his London promises, that are mentioned by Mr. Merriman in his speech, reproduced elsewhere, on the second reading of the bill in Parliament. It would seem that General Botha endeavored to allay British apprehensions and concern for the welfare of the native population. In pursuance of this policy General Botha won the approbation of all natives by appointing Honorable H. Burton, a Cape minister, to the portfolio of native affairs. That the appointment was a happy one, from the native point of view, became manifest when Mr. Burton signalized the ushering in of Union by releasing Chief Dinizulu Kaseti Weo, who at that time was undergoing a sentence of imprisonment imposed by the Natal Supreme Court and by the restoration to Dinizulu of his pension of £500 a year. Also, in deference to the wishes of the Native Congress, Mr. Burton abrogated two particularly obnoxious Natal measures, one legalizing the Cibolo system of forced labor, the other prohibiting public meetings by natives without the consent of the government.